0: Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan.
1: And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. You're listening to Welcome to the Jungle, recorded by Guns N' Roses and written by the band, including our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Duff McKagan. Though best known as the bassist for Guns N' Roses, Duff McKagan wears many musical hats. He started his career in Seattle playing various instruments in various punk bands. Following a stint on guitar in the group 10-Minute Warning, he moved to Los Angeles and eventually ended up in Guns N' Roses. Starting in 1987, they released a steady stream of classics with songwriting credits to the whole band, including Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City, and Patience. As the 1990s dawned, the group released the albums Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which included Duff-penned songs such as Civil War, which he co-wrote with Slash and Axl Rose, and So Fine, which he wrote solo, and on which he performed the lead vocal. Following Duff's first solo album Believe in Me in 1993, he formed the supergroup Neurotic Outsiders, which included Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols, John Taylor of Duran Duran, and Matt Sorum of the Cult and Guns N' Roses. After departing Guns N' Roses in 1997, Duff returned to 10-Minute Warning before forming a new band called Loaded. That band went on hiatus when he launched Velvet Revolver with Loaded guitarist Dave Kushner, Slash, Matt Sorum, and Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots. Writing the songs with the whole band, they found success with tracks such as Slither and Fall to Pieces. In 2016, Duff and Slash officially returned to Guns N' Roses to headline Coachella. Prior to his return, he played with various groups, including A Revival of Loaded, as well as Alice Cooper's Band, Jane's Addiction, and Hollywood Vampire. Since returning to Guns N' Roses, Duff has remained busy with outside projects. His solo album, Tenderness, produced by Shooter Jennings, was released in 2019. He co-wrote five songs on Ozzy Osbourne's Ordinary Man album and co-wrote three songs on Iggy Pop's album, Every Loser. His most recent solo effort, entitled Lighthouse, was released in 2023. Part 1. Scott,
0: have you ever been working on a song? No. Oh. Oh, well thanks everybody for listening. It's been a <laughs> it's been a great time at Songcraft today. No, co- cooperate with me. Man. <laughs> Sorry. You've been working on a song and uh-huh. someone gives you some advice on it, right? You don't take the advice and you work on the track and you stick to your guns, but it doesn't end up smelling like roses. you, you <laughs> Do you see where I'm going? With I see.
1: That? I see what you did there. It's yeah. very that was thematic. I like that. It. It's because of Duff. <laughs> it's yeah.
0: because we're talking to, <laughs> yeah, I, to Duff I,
1: today. I, I got that. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, anyway, good. in that situation, you know, you don't want to do that track on your own. You want to listen to somebody's advice and maybe take it to a professional.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Like our friends at Pearl Snap Studios, Justin and his team can take your song and turn it into an incredible recording. Because, you know, sometimes, Paul, I think it's hard for us to be objective about our own material. We might not be the best barometers and we might need that objective set of ears that somebody who brings in those special skills that goes, hey, let me create a demo for this song that really makes the song shine and, and do something that maybe you hadn't thought about.
0: Yeah. Cause I think if you don't take that type of advice, don't use that type of, you know, uh, help when it's available to you, I would say that you have an appetite for destruction. You know,
1: <laughs> when you say that, I mean, uh, well, I need uh, a little patience when it comes to uh, to, to you and your puns, so uh, we want to have everybody go to PearlSnapStudios.com right now. Uh, sorry for that for that terrible dad jokery, you guys, uh, yeah. but um, we'll, we'll, we'll try to do better. Go talk to Justin, get you a great demo, and uh, tell him Songcraft sent you. At
0: least I wasn't telling lies. <sighs> so PearlSnap Snap supports you, the writer, but... I want to talk about this really cool platform where people are supporting us, Scott. And every now and then, you and I get behind on things. I'm going to be honest about that. We're not perfect. You know, we run a tight ship here, but every now and then, we're supposed to be giving some people some shout-outs, and, and I think there are some people that are deserving of shout-outs for their support of the podcast.
1: Absolutely. And if you don't know what we're talking about, Patreon is a platform where folks can go on and help financially support what we do here at Songcraft. And you can find our specific page at patreon.com slash Songcraft show. And you you help support us, you help keep things going here at at Songcraft if you believe in our mission and you get certain things in return. And one of those things that you get in return is at a at a certain level if you donate $10 a month or more to Songcraft, um you get a personalized shout out on the show. I'm talking about people like Ronnie Lambrecht here. Yep. Uh who has been supporting us on Patreon. I'm talking about people like Aaron Anderson over here. Come on, Aaron. I'm talking about people like Noah Budin or Noah Budden. Sorry, no, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it, but I know that I am. <laughs> to have your name pronounced correctly, it's a higher <laughs> tier. <so. laughs> yeah, that's $50 a month if you want your name <laughs> said correctly. But yeah. uh, Noah yeah. B, we'll call you yeah, Noah, Noah B. B. Uh, very much appreciate what you guys are doing. And so if you, if you are not currently a Patreon supporter, supporter, supporter. Um, go check it out, see what some of the tiers are. We have the, um, the top 10 with a bullet, which is where you get a a personalized shout out. You also get the opportunity. We will post upcoming guests, Mm. um, and you can get an opportunity to submit uh, a question for consideration. And if we use your question, um, on the show, we'll actually give you a shout out and say your name. Uh, we have a tier above that called the number one smash where, uh, Paul and I will sign, um, some show notes, uh, which is the questions that we write out, um, the research that we do. And and we'll sign one of those of your favorite episode and, and send you a, a digital copy of that. Um, and you know, plus all the stuff you heard us talk about before we have, um, the platinum seller tier where after you've been a member at that tier for three months, we will offer you written professional critiques, uh, of your original song we songs. just did this. we just did this last week for just yeah um gave some feedback on three very good songs yep. and um it's always nice when they're good, and and uh, you know that that's fun. Um, but the other can be fun too. So yeah, well, we give you our yeah. <laughs> different kind of fun, right? No, we give you our our you know a real opinion and real feedback that hopefully is is helpful and and constructive. Um, and then at our timeless standard tier, which is the one above that, you'll get a uh, one-on-one Zoom session for an hour uh, with my. Esteemed co-host Paul Duncan here, professional songwriter who will actually help you finish or fine tune uh, your original composition. So that's just a few of the things. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, but uh, most importantly, it means that you are helping support Songcraft and what we do and our mission, and and that means a ton because uh, you know we don't have. Um, you know, Bank of America or uh, or, or Citibank as our corporate sponsor right. here. You know, it's we're all a team. We're all in this together.
0: folks. We are in this together, and it's important for us to know that we're thankful. We're grateful that you listen, and we're grateful that you, for any support that you give, um, it means a lot to us because we're just a couple knuckleheads talking about music, and uh, <laughs> the the fact that it means something to you is uh, really gratifying and beautiful to us. So, thank you for all the support. Um, over the years. I can't believe I can say over the years, but we've been doing this for years. So yeah, thank you for all the support for what has uh, nearly a decade. This show is older than both your children. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And yeah, and more well-behaved.
1: <laughs> Sometimes.
0: So Scott, uh, we referenced a little bit earlier uh, that we're talking to Duff McKagan from Guns and Roses today, and that for me is is. A pretty awesome episode. I mean, oh, yeah. you're talking about formative music for us, um, and music that was kind of like it felt like a big bang when it landed. Like it just sort of changed the musical universe. Right. The moment Appetite for Destruction came out, um, and there aren't too many bands uh, or artists, I would say, that that have that kind of legacy. That that when they right. landed it just created a, a sea change in in everything around them, you know?
1: Yeah, there was something about Guns N' Roses that was rock and roll in that it felt dangerous. I mean, it took that kind of punk rock energy, but, you know, punk was not mainstream, right. you know? Um, so it kind of took that punk rock attitude, but then it also had, like, you know, production polish, but yeah. not too much polish, like right. enough to make it appealing and radio friendly but still like edgy and it instantly made the hard rock bands that were kind of big at the time seem kind of silly um yeah know, the hair metal stuff and the theatrics and the you know that you know that kind of thing it just all of a sudden didn't seem very cool anymore
0: yeah i think there was a point when we heard a song like "Runaway" from bon jovi and thought that sounds dangerous <laughs> and it, and then all of a sudden here comes welcome to the jungle you're like oh Right, That's dangerous. And maybe there was something about uh, music production in the years, you know, the, the mid-'80s, where they felt like to be larger than life, the the way to get there was to use cavernous reverbs, um, really wide synth sounds and things right. that, that made things sound bigger than just what you heard in your rehearsal room. And all of a sudden, Guns N' Roses are like, no, this is what it sounds like in the room, and it's ferocious. <laughs> yeah. and And just the sound of a guitar and the sound of a drum kit and the sound of a wailing, screeching voice... Became the new larger than life. Yeah. The new dangerous.
1: It's interesting because you you look at, um, you know, obviously you have the pioneers of rock and roll, right? And it's like a guy like Little Richard comes out and and changes everything. That's yeah. Domino before him. You know, these are the architects, so yeah. to speak. Chuck Berry changes everything. Elvis, obviously, is this huge um, shift yeah. where... Suddenly, rock and roll kind of goes from R and B to um, multi-genre in a way. Yeah, that's
0: what um, people don't always, I think, understand about Elvis is that it was a fusion. Right, that right. fusion is what made it such a cataclysmic event.
1: Right. But all that, I mean, I would argue that all of that, like, you know, from Fats Domino, you know, maybe even back to like Louis Jordan yeah. and and even some like country stuff that was happening, all that was this sort of cauldron that was becoming rock and roll. And then by you know, the end of the 50s, yeah. you know, you have rock and roll. And obviously I think it goes without saying that the Beatles, you know, changed the world. There's no, there's it doesn't take a genius to, to point that out. Right. But by that point, you're kind of getting into this era of like, okay, here's what rock and roll is. But I think you bring up an interesting thing about Appetite for Destruction because how many bands are there that came out and, and caused kind of a reset? Um, right. Or, or the, these artists that that actually had enough of an impact that it really did have, not just that it was popular, right. but it had serious ripple effects where you see people like kind of flooding in and imitating and and it really, like like you say, a sea change.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... I think you look at elements of the music, and, and and the Beatles did that because they were bringing not only the sounds of these kind of like jangly guitars and whatever they're doing from an instrumental standpoint, but they were bringing European chord changes and, right. and things like that into the game. Um, I think you'd have to look at um, someone like uh, Johnny Mitchell, maybe, or Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I mean, somebody right. sort of ushered in this singer-songwriter movement. And, right. And, you know, who are you going to give credit to for that? Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's Joni. Yeah,
1: you know. I think that whole Laurel Canyon thing was almost like a group. That was almost like a, because all these people were friends.
0: Is somebody going to say it was Donovan before that? Maybe, but I feel like that was a little, yeah, a, yeah. a little light. Yeah, to, to, <laughs> right, really...
1: right. Which is funny because like Crosby, Stills, and Nash couldn't be lighter, but like at right. the same time, it feels a little different. Right. Um, I think for me, one of the first, I mean, post Beatles, I think one of the first big bands that had a complete sea change uh, was The Band um yeah. and you know everything was kind of like paisley and summer of love yeah. and you know, this kind of like hippie vibe and it was psychedelic and it was sort of becoming more and more bloated and, and <laughs> you know, experimental. And then suddenly here come these guys out of nowhere that look like they just came from the Civil War. Right, right. And, yeah,
0: and it didn't feel cool <laughs> to name your band Strawberry Alarm Clock
1: anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you have Eric Clapton, who's in Cream, wearing feather boas 24 hours a day, to now he wants to join the yeah. band. I mean, he's talked about like... I wanted to be, I wanted to be in that band. Like that was a sea change. You got
0: Elton John with his first two or three records being like, I want to be the band. I want to sound exactly like the band.
1: Tumbleweed Connection is one of the best band albums ever.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, but then of course Elton comes and kind of like changes things you know, I don't, I don't know if I would call him one of those sea change artists because I think he was part of a movement the whole time. I don't know that Elton was necessarily out at the sort of naked forefront of something. Right. Um, I think, you know, the Bee Gees, even though the Bee Gees were sort of, the Bee Gees were probably a little more of a fusion than anything because they were taking some more like, you know, maybe Philly soul and like, you know, black R&B elements and incorporating them and what, and their sort of singer songwriter movement, but they certainly represented a a sea change. I think Nights on Broadway, the introduction of the falsetto (laughs) uh, changed a lot of things.
1: Right. Yeah. And that was music that like took over so hard that there was a backlash. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually people were like, oh, we don't like that. Um, which is interesting cause I don't feel like that really happened to Guns and Roses. Like, no. I, I feel like they always kind of maintained this certain, uh, mystique, you yeah. know, um, even through like you had a sea change with Nirvana yeah. obviously and, and the whole grunge thing. Um, it's interesting that Duff is from Seattle. Right. Um, but I feel like Guns N' Roses, like, through that whole change, they didn't... Guns N' Roses never tried to become a grunge band, which I think a lot of rock bands, you know, unfortunately did. Um, They just kept being Guns N' Roses. And But I I think there's an argument to be made that, like, without the Guns N' Roses bridge, I don't know if you have the grunge movement, you know?
0: Well, and it's interesting because most of these bands that we're talking about have, you know a member who's kind of the the conscience of the band yeah you know I, I think for a lot of bands it's the front man you had your kurt cobain who was certainly you know this sort of integrity meter right you know, he's the one that's on the cover of rolling stone wearing a t-shirt that says corporate magazines still suck you know um <laughs> right. but i wonder if duff coming in with his sort of punk sensibilities um sort of provided a little bit of uh, that sort of conscience for the band like you know what would L. A. have done to Guns N' Roses without Duff in the band? Yeah, is it possible? I mean, you know, right? Uh, maybe they would have been the same dangerous animal that we that we know and love. But I certainly think having a guy who was raised on Iggy Pop, right, um, helped guide the, the Guns N' Roses into what we know them to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the thing that's that's so interesting about Duff is. You know, and you guys are going to hear literally just the tip of the iceberg because, well, I guess not literally, because we have yeah, no iceberg it's literally, literally it's, it's a metaphor. here. Metaphorically, yeah. metaphorically, yeah. you guys are going to hear just the tip of the iceberg because um this is a guy that has been involved, uh, as you heard in the intro, in so many things. And we're just kind of, you know. He's
0: been in Velvet Revolved in so many bands. Oh, my gosh. Sorry.
1: Ugh man. Uh, That's but, he, <laughs> but he's one of those guys that uh, has just done so much. And and I referenced this in the conversation, but I wanted to, to, to flesh it out a little more while you and I talk about it. Cause I think this is maybe one of the more interesting stories in, in rock and roll. Uh, but when Guns N' Roses became successful, Uh, my understanding is that Duff basically like didn't know how to look at like their royalty statements. He didn't understand how these things were being calculated. And instead of being like, well, I'll just hire some somebody to explain this to me or, or to handle it. He's like, I'm going to go enroll in Santa Monica city college and take some finance classes. And so then he does that, but then he keeps going with it. And my understanding is he actually wound up getting like a college degree in economics and finance. And then started kind of explaining this stuff to other artists and then co-founded a wealth management company that is designed to help artists like understand how to manage their money and invest properly. I mean, this guy is like that's incredible to me. Yeah. That that somebody would have that level of commitment to be like, look, and still somehow manage to be in like three bands at any given time. Right. And and that that he would say like, no, this is important. I'm gonna go like and, and And I believe he was an early investor in Starbucks. Like this dude is, yeah, this dude is
0: like a sharp dude. He's smart, and and it's it's crazy that more young musicians don't take an active role in their finances (laughs) and in the way their contracts are put together. Um, But I think I think most just say, "Oh, somebody's going to handle this for me. I'm going to have a business manager. I'm going to have them handle it for me." And man, Duff is just one of those guys who seems to grab every opportunity by the tail. He seems he he wants to be in the center of it he, yeah you know he may, it's part of being a bass player maybe you're at the foundational rhythmic pulse level of the music you right know, yeah y- you know and he wants to be at the foundational level of everything he's doing
1: yeah I guess what we're saying is Duff we really enjoyed talking with you you're an amazing guy and if you have any pull with the Starbucks people and can get us some kind of discount card yeah, yeah. Uh, you know 20% off of of a of a coffee I'll take investment or, tips you know, <laughs> as well <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, if you got any advice uh, for some? We don't have any wealth uh, to manage, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, maybe is like, there a poverty management <laughs> branch? Is there? Do uh, you have like a middle, lower middle class management kind of kind of <laughs> program? We'd love to sign up for that. But no, seriously, very cool, dude. Very fun to talk to, and uh, this was this was a lot of fun for us.
0: Part two. Duff, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks, Thanks for, for having out. me. So you have a brand new record called Lighthouse, um, and we're going to dive into a lot of what Lighthouse is about. But I'm noticing that your previous record, uh, Tinderness, came out in 2019, and a lot has happened in the world between 2019 and 2023. And on Lighthouse, I hear a lot of, you know, you're taking on societal issues. You're looking at things that are happening kind of in the geopolitical sphere? I mean, how much did world events and what you were watching maybe on your TV or whatever contribute to the writing and the composition of this record?
2: Right. Um, Here's the thing, man. I I don't watch. uh, I watch shows on TV. I don't watch the news. I I haven't been able to watch cable news since about the end of 2015. I watched some more, you know, morning local traffic and weather and that stuff. Um, I have a Subscription to the USA Today, so while uh, that seems to be the most sort of like centrist paper that there is, no, um, so I mean I'm aware of what's going on in the world for sure. I travel a ton, and I love getting my news that way, like up close and personal. And I I I, I do these little side trips on my on my traveling um, all the time. To towns that we're not playing in small towns i do a lot of small towns yeah right so we we hit the point where we weren't touring nobody was um and at the point i was making this record i i you know i, was, I just started recording songs and that was 2019 so COVID had hit. um and and then COVID hit and you you i had this time for kind of mega reflection you know as the weeks turned to months and turned to more months and a year and um and it was i hate to sound like uh anything because it was an awful time the pandemic but for me as a musician and as a songwriter i just i had all this time to end my own studio and it was really uh, kind of an amazing um vision quest if you will and I did reflect on things that were happening in the world. Uh, I I do reflect on those things. I, I think I always have. I mean, that song Hope that's on Lighthouse, that was written in 1996. So it seems like a current issue, but that just goes to show you that. Well, very you know, much so. I
0: mean, you're talking about, you know, holy wars and, you know, fighting for someone else's faith and and how that kind of affects yeah the whole world and it, it, it couldn't be more pertinent than it is right at this moment.
2: I mean, it's always going to be pertinent because there's always something going on. And um, I I am a reader of history. Uh, I go into huge, like, I'll go into an area like the Crusades and read everything I can. I'll get interested in some subject and go all in. And I just got done reading about the Crusades. I read about the Crusades for about eight months. Kind of a bunch of different angles on it. Uh, the Crusades were a time when the when the Christians went down to uh, Jerusalem to take it over, take it over from the the you know Islam at the time, and uh, it had been taken over so many times, um, and so much bad stuff has been done there. Yeah. This is just this new. This is just the latest one. If you yeah. read about the history of that, that area, you know pre-Roman all that stuff. It, that it's just been getting hammered forever yeah. so uh you could write a song 25 years ago and be like oh he was writing about you yeah. know gaza and uh, <laughs> yeah no that actually not had, hadn't happened it could have been about the irish troubles or the you know yeah. whatever but um, something's always seems to be happening
1: um one of the things that i've read about you is that sort of just out of a personal interest you got fascinated by like, how do royalty statements work? What do they mean? And you wound up enrolling in some finance classes and then that snowballed into getting a degree and eventually launching essentially a wealth management company for musicians who might not have those skills, which based on, you know, you didn't just read a book about the Crusades. You spent months reading multiple books. You went and, and got a degree. It sounds like when something captures your interest like you're you're in you know you 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 do the research you go all the way um how does that kind of manifest itself for you as a as a songwriter like if you get interested in a certain topic you want to write about a certain thing is there is there kind of a research component for you uh as a songwriter
2: great question um i think you know that's sort of a type personality which i i guess i have you know which you know, seize the thing, do your best at it, figure out, you know, read all sides, try to get, you know, a um, form your own opinion. Um, but I try to, you know, I'm sitting in, in my library right now. If I could just take you through a tour of my library, it would take, it would take me, you know, 10 hours because I would talk about every book. Um, I think with songwriting, it's something I've always like, been so busy in bands since punk rock days like 1979 write a song great man let's make a single right let's go and and you know uh all through that era era i'm playing drums i'm playing guitar i'm playing bass i moved to uh my other instruments i had to sell my drum kit my guitar got taken by the cops and blah blah, blah. so i'm a bass player and then getting in and writing songs with with guns was like when we really figured out how to write like songs with connector pieces and like every part made it had to had to make total sense and um and in the last let's say seven years is now i'm in my phase of learning how to write songs in a way that most i think is is the best for for my style of singing for my style of acoustic guitar playing for my style of drumming if I have to play drums uh which I do and I'm you know I I, and so now I'm exploring all of that where I'm at now and it started with keen interest in Mark Lanigan's solo work and we had become friends back in 96 and his songwriting is I'll never be the singer the Mark who, who nobody will but uh that took me down a road into like the twilight singers and and greg dooley and a bunch of stuff that i'm like ah this is this is familiar to me these are punk rock songs slowed down and you know i i I talk about it like me and my wife susan and my uh radio show we call it three chords and the Truths you know and that came really from me going to a class show in 1979 and seeing that up close and personal and like three chords and the truth man that's what it's all about that's what fucking you know lemmy was about that's what i i there's so many the the great artists that i love just keep it simple and there's a bit of truth in whatever they their lyric and so that's what i'm trying i'm really trying to explore now three chords and the truth man and and uh um i I let the acoustic guitar resonate up against my chest and i Finally figured out that, oh, it's trying to tell me where to sing. That's the most. You know, duh, duh, (laughs) you know, the whole time, duh, sing in this range great. Wow.
0: The more I dive through all of your material, you know, you become increasingly hard to to pin down for me. There are so many influences that I hear coming through your music and so many things that you're able to express. I mean, from the beginning of this Lighthouse record, the first song feels like it's just going to be kind of a, you know, a mellow, introspective strummer, you know, and then it builds into this multi-layered dynamic that just kind of tells me, oh, there's more coming on this record. Just another shakedown, which has got your your punk roots are at the forefront of that song. you about holy water um because from a musical standpoint the song is hooky and like you're saying you know what you learned in the guns days like the song takes you where you want to go as a listener but there are these left turns there are these moments where it shifts you know i feel like key changes but then it comes back I found myself thinking could this only be the work of a bass player because you you know you're talking about the the melodic part of the rhythm section where you understand the pulse of a song but to me the bass is really the foundational driving point of where the chords go the the song can't go anywhere without the bass going there absolutely um and you know it it feels like these these changes in a song like Holy Water are foundational changes, but they never rock the foundation of the song. Um, and I, I, there's a question in there somewhere, but I'm going to leave it a little open-ended and just ask you to comment on that.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, as a bass player, I've I figured out on the bass, you know, technically am I the guy that you want to be in your jazz prog thing? Probably not. You know, but I know how to, through playing with... I. With Slash for so many years, I know where where to go and where to m- melodically lift him or lift the song by something he's doing in a, let's say, a third. And I'll, I won't play the root. I'll play a, a fifth or a something, you know, and it mm-hmm. lifts this song. It, and years and years of doing that, thinking of bass playing in those terms, being melodic, playing the parts that don't don't just play the root chords. Do something rhythmic and cool, you know, and talk to your drummer and, and come up with something rhythmic and cool, not just, uh, you know. Um, so, it, it, in a song like Holy Water, uh, I think more to that is a it's a, um, it's a. it's a time signature change of some sort. Uh, I've had a couple drummers, including Barrett Martin uh, from Screaming Trees and then Jamie from Shooter's band. he played it on the record. Uh, like really good drummers, school drummers going what the hell is going on here <laughs> And I don't know what that is yeah I don't I don't really count. I just feel I mean of course I count, you know, but I don't count when something changes I know long feathers in ten something i guess apparently according to my (laughs) drummer friends you know okay fine it's it's just you know when i write on acoustic i've always written on acoustic i think that then when i do add a bass to the thing i i pull the song different places and uh you can really do that if you're if you're thinking i mean i was a drummer you know Uh, i am a drummer but I, i i played in early bands as a drummer so i really knew what a bass player should be doing i thought and what a guitar i play guitar and other bands i knew what a guitar player should be doing besides fucking noodling, <laughs> you know um <laughs> right yeah um so I, I i think i've i think as a whole when i'm writing a song and what definitely when i'm recording it like what part serves the song the best and and a base bass parts can really serve a song or really make it boring or make it too, too much, you know, or whatever. So it's just what serves the song. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Now I know that for a guy like you, um, you've had a long career, you've had a lot of milestones. You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for goodness sakes. I'm sure there have been plenty of points along the route of your career where you've felt, uh, you know, encouraged and validated. And like, you know, I would imagine that the longer you go in your career, the more rare maybe those moments become because you've checked off certain boxes. You've you've made certain achievements. Um, but I understand that there was a little shout-out from Bob Dylan uh, that I think any songwriter, no matter what you've achieved, if you get a, a shout-out from Dylan, uh, that's got to be a, a huge boost. Um, and for those who don't know the story, I'd, I'd love for you to... to Tell what happened and and then also just kind of talk about how getting that kind of shout out, um, you know, after your last record, maybe even just sort of influenced your confidence or or whatever it is going into to a new record.
2: Yeah. So what happened? I started getting texts on a. It was a Tuesday morning uh, early. I wasn't even up yet. And these texts were coming from England. Then there's texts and call come from the east coast and then you know it worked this way i was on the west coast i wake up to all these texts and links dude dylan check it out man you know his friends of my writer friends or musician friends or whoever uh wall street journal uh dylan does not do very many interviews and the one he chose to do was with wall street journal and they asked him about songs and songwriting or something new music or whatever it was and um uh, Dylan name-checked me and he name checked a song Chip Away. That's on Tenderness, my last record.
3: Oh, history Ray has had some great names. Some badass motherfuckers who didn't give a shit. F y I would laugh, Mama Luther Holler.
2: I was really like completely dumbfounded that Tuesday. I was like, I, I finally could click the because I was just getting so many texts. I clicked the link and I read the thing and I'm like, oh wow, you know, like thank you. I, I wrote him a a note and sent him a deluxe package. That was the first thing I could think of, like thanking him, handwritten note. You know, hopefully it got to him. He's Bob Dylan, right. you know, um, <laughs> you know, he's. Uh, there's only you know there's like, you know those people that float on a the magic carpet you know that's Iggy. Yeah. There's Bob Dylan. There's not that many left. You know, <laughs> yeah. They yeah. Float on them. You don't. You don't want to know too much, and you, know? you hope you send the pla- the deluxe edition and the note to the right place. You know, <laughs> right. um,
0: yeah. But, you just uh, put North Pole you know, on it. Like I mean, <laughs> yeah,
1: <exactly. laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. What do you put? Yeah. What was the ad- it was someplace? I don't know.
1: But, um, you
2: know, I was already well into writing for for this. I mean, I had written songs for this. I, I mean, I am always in a, a state of, of writing, and, and now that I have my own studio in a state of recording. Uh, so I think I was already well into recording. It was just a nice little bump, you know? Yeah, you're right. It does give you confidence. I read a lot of really... I got to give it to, like, Cormac McCarthy, the author, for really influencing not just my lyrics but the way i've written like in books and in columns and and whatnot um in a way that he just chops out so many words and so it leaves you with three words that you know three words that can take your breath away um so you know you're covering heavy you know big subjects in a song sometimes like holy Water, great It's a big complex subject how do you how do you do that and you know it's often I'll ha- oftentimes I'll have a couple pages of words and I'll just start paring it down or or I'll write a lyric I'll write a lyric I think I'm done with it and I'll look at it the next day I'm like that is the worst lyric you've ever written <laughs> so you start over and um, it's it's a nice challenge for me lyric writing I really I really enjoy when I hit a line that's that line that turns the whole song or identifies what you're talking about. Um, you don't need to spell out everything you don't need to spell every, out everything in lyric writing you know you don't you know you don't it's not a manual
0: mentioning no. that it, and, and talking about the economy of words and the right words and also t- writing about heavy subjects. I mean when I saw the title Parkland on your tenderness record, I was like, oh wow, I'm gonna go see I'm gonna go see what's here. And the opening line just says, "Oh shit, have you heard about Parkland?" And I thought, "Man, I cannot imagine a more human, conversational, appropriate way to open that song." And I and I feel like if I was writing that song, I might have started with something really kind of flowery, you know, about, you know, young soul, something like that. And you came out right. with this immediate arresting, you know, punch to the chest of a lyric. Um, and you know we've had writers talk before about how that's so hard to maintain that that sense of uh, underwriting the line because sometimes the older we get, you know, we we try to be sophisticated all the time. And and yeah. you you came out with something that just felt so uh, so visceral and and real on that line.
2: Yeah, I mean, because as that fuck that time was going, it was still happening. That's the, that's the thing, and it was still happening. It was there was things before parkland and things you know i was in i was i had this song while i was writing the song a couple other things happened you know mass mm-hmm. shootings and it's like oh shit i've heard you know <laughs> you can go down the line yeah yeah in the song just went down the line um and i didn't you don't need to comment much more than that you don't need to write about the flower i mean maybe the flower thing the other the the innocence of You, all of that stuff, but I think it's it's all says it in that song. It's the yeah. unwritten stuff that we all know. These fucking poor kids and what's going on with ugh, people taking guns into schools and you know yeah. illness and who knows, you know. But uh, uh, it's a it's a different time than when I grew up. Yeah. Speaking of when
0: you grew up, um, you know, we've we've heard some about your recent influences and the influences that have kind of made you who you're up to that point. But I'd like to know about your first influences, about the first songs that you heard, you know, because kids are kids are wet cement. You know, you could decide you want to be a fireman. You could decide you want to be a I wanted to be a drag racer when I was a kid. Didn't work out. Um, But, you know, there's (laughs) there's a point at, at which. You know, everybody hears music, but there's a point when a kid begins to listen to music and begins to feel like music is speaking to him. I'd, I'd like to know when that point was for you.
2: I think it was pretty early on. I mean, uh, because I've told the story a million times. I'm the last of eight kids, and the, the the age span is, my oldest brother is 20 years older than me. So two of my brothers were in Vietnam when I was born and little kid, um, but there was a brother at home. Um, and one of the brothers came back from Vietnam and he brought a stereo with a reel-to-reel. I guess he must have bought it in the Philippines or somewhere, right? Uh, and at a, at a you know, Piac or something. He brought a stereo home. It's like, wow. Um, with real reel-to-reel. And on the reel-to-reel was James Gang. But we had a couple tapes on reel-to-reel James Gang and signed to Feminist Stone. And I learned how to, to you know, thread the, the, the tape was no big deal that's what you that's what you did um but i my brother bruce he had the sonics record which i think probably i guess if you're he was in a rock band if you're in a rock band in the in the northwest you had the sonics record so the song the witch really spoke to me as a little kid like wow it's a real witch on a broom you know (laughs) that's what i thought i was five or six you know and i would play that song over and over and over again lovely Rita meter maid really spoke to me a big yeah. I, I was in kindergarten so I think there was a a girl that in kindergarten that reminded me of like she was, she's lovely Rita so it's really r- romantic to me you know um but the James gang the rhythms of the Sign of family stone and James gang really I mean Sign the family stone for a little kid and that's going yeah. on at that time there's so many things going on and it's like a cartoon it's like an audio cartoon amazing you know yeah all those voices in there and the like and so that really influenced me rhythmically you know it 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 got me into prints early prints you know because it was i wanted more of that and um but uh, you know, so Led Zeppelin, we, we had FM radio at our house. FM radio just started, so they would play a whole side of a record. You know, they'd play Exile. You know, they play Stone, uh, 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 Led Zeppelin. Um, there were things I didn't like. There were songs that dro- dro- drove me crazy as a little kid, and I still can't listen to it. I won't unnamed. I won't, I won't uh, put down <laughs> anybody, but there were songs I just couldn't do still can't say it backwards and see uh, if we can pick out what it is yeah 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 right but um i think it was just that basic you know uh the sonics listen to sonics was, it was a great introduction of just eight years later for me to punk rock you know like that's as punk as it gets you yeah. know I came to later find out Iggy. But I said, what were you guys' influence for the Stooges? I asked, asked him that question like a dum-dum. I asked him, Iggy, can you? Because now I'm kind of, you know, he's Iggy. He's on a magic carpet. But <laughs> I got to play yeah. in a band with him a couple of times to help him with a record, this last record. So I, Amazing. what was your early influences? I asked him that back in 1990. And he said the Sonics. Wow. I'm like, shit, I'm on the right track. <laughs>
1: right, right. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, um, getting to work with Iggy and, and, uh, you performed on and and co-wrote a handful of songs on his most recent album, um, uh, notably Frenzy, which is a a, a great track. Um, but you have been a collaborator like your whole career. I mean, your first solo record, you know, has got Lenny Kravitz on there. You got Jeff Beck popping up. You, You know, uh, you you did the whole Velvet Revolver thing, which is like a super group. You've been in a band with Steve Jones. You have written songs with Ozzy Osbourne. Steve Jones is
2: also on the Magic Carpet, by the way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, I mean, we see this thread through your whole career where you've gotten to work with peers, but also heroes and probably some heroes that became yeah. peers. And, um, you know, I think for me, one of the more interesting ones is is writing a song with Ozzy Osbourne and Elton John, uh, you know, which is is not not two artists that maybe people think of in the same breath. But I bring that up because you have worked, as Paul pointed out, with so many different people from so many different genres, you obviously have a way of kind of seeing beyond genre and, uh, and bringing things together that maybe people wouldn't normally think of going together. Would love specifically just to hear about, you know, the collaboration with Ozzy and, and Elton, but just also more in general terms of, you know, how you think about collaboration and how collaborating with others kind of fuels your own creativity.
2: Sure. Well, I, we have this really cool little group um which is myself uh chad smith and andrew watt and we can for the aussie record you're talking about that first one we did together we wrote and recorded i think it was nine songs wrote and recorded in four days (laughs) um so we really we really blossomed together and find the things and Ordinary Man, the song you're talking about with Ozzy and Elton. Um, we, acoustic guitars, as always, starts and then, okay, right, we're going to record this and Chad, don't come in and tell, don't, just don't come in. And that, I think that was kind of more for my, my uh, tenderness record, like that sort of writing thing where drums don't come in and, and on Lighthouse, there's there's part there's songs like that and drums don't come in until near the end, you know. Um and Chad, when he does come in, it's like wow, you know, uh <laughs> wow, it just lifts the song. Um, so there's certain little things you can do, but um the solo part, we like as soon as we wrote the song, we gotta get Slash to play the lead on this. It's th- that full feel. So I know how to write a part. Good or bad, I know how to write a solo uh, transition for Slash. That's like my my pride. That's like my pride thing to do. I know how he plays. I know how he thinks. I know where he'd want to go, where to minor, and blah blah blah. Um, and so that song, you know, it was really just for Ozzy at first. Ozzy's vocal on it was great alone because it was more personal. Uh, but he wanted to get Elton on it, which sure, okay, get Elton John, I mean, yeah, all right. And um, they made that happen. I wasn't there when Elton played on it, but it's it's a perfect Elton John kind of song too. and as far as like genres i grew up genreless i mean there was mills brothers records at our house from my parents my parents were much older yeah so there was like big band and big and bebop and stuff that i would put on as well on the record player um and when punk rock came i i that was really more music that spoke to me it wasn't led zeppelin and and like the older kids music it was mine and I I retained my my love for the Stones and and you know Led Zeppelin and Sign and the Family Stone blah 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 but I just expanded and in punk rock you could listen to anything at least in my little scene in Seattle and they turned me on to the sweet like glam rock sweet and T Rex mm-hmm. and Stooges and MC Five and I'm like and giving me history lessons about it and oh my and A C D C the first you know thing was considered a punk rock band. So it was easy for yeah. us to access. Um, and then, but, but, you know, also I got introduced to the Prince record in that time. The first Prince record. Uh, well, I think the Prince first one is for you or the second one's for you. Whatever. There's Prince and there's for you. And those records, oh, the guy, he plays everything. Yeah. That's what yeah. I'm doing right now. It's punk rock bands, you know. I could yeah. never be Prince. But, you know, <laughs> it was a guy I could identify with. And his songs were really just these really cool basic two, three chord songs. I still think Little Red Corvette is maybe the most perfect three chord song ever written. Yeah. You know, that was later, of course. But, you know, um, but genre-less, I think, um, I I love a good pop song. If I hear Adele first came out, there's that song. uh, What is the song? She's like, you know, talking to her boyfriend or whatever across the oh hello hello yeah yeah and i'm like oh my god this song is so good you know
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. and i it, it's so good i mean a good song is a good song um so it whatever strikes me at a dip whatever time um and I i i'm all for it and writing a song this song this ordinary man there was a There was an idea we had, you know, that me and Chad and and Andrew had, and this could be his life story and telling the truth, you know. And so we wrote that song, and it came out as it came out. It's just a big, nice ballad.
0: You know, uh, as your story formed itself, you know, Scott and I kind of came of age in the 90s. And at that time, Seattle was considered, you know, the epicenter for rock music. And it was a scene and everything. But, you know, before that, to, to really make it in music, I think for a lot of people, a move to L.A. felt like the thing that you had to do. Um, and, you know, after kind of like starting some of your own punk bands there in the Seattle area, you did move to L.A. And I think we can all look at, at these stories of people that came to L.A. and made it. And we understand what L.A. represents as a business town. But I'm curious what LA meant for you musically. Like, what changes you found when you got there in terms of the sounds you were growing up with? What was happening musically around you that that sort of started to shape your instincts as a writer and a player?
2: Nothing. It was the wow. four guys I. It was the four guys I found. Amazing. Uh, we knew we knew punk rock was over, you know, in '84, '85. Whatever was going to be next was going to lie on our uh, kids our age's uh, backs. What's going to be next? And, um, you know, when I moved to L.A., there was a bit of because punk rock was, was over at that point. You know, social distortion left, and fear was still playing some gigs, but it was just those kind of – and X. But, like, that great scene that I grew up with was gone. Yeah. that kind of like everything goes like punk rings moved in and just all this you know it was over over um so when i moved to la there was a lot of long hair a lot of the um bands i just had no idea how to identify with i and i didn't want to you know the double kick drum and and uh the hair, hair a lot of hair a lot of uh, odd shaped <laughs> guitars and you know Pointy guitars and and I just I even meeting Slash and Stephen they had long hair and I had short blue hair I'm like I it was like culture shock but I realized it, I was a bit of culture shock for them too I was wearing like a long like pimp jacket and and blue hair and they were like oh we met on a blind you know uh, through the recycling through a, through a newspaper wow, and there's wow. a couple guys with long hair long hair but we got back to Slash's house his mom's house his the basement and he started playing acoustic guitar in it. and i played with some good guitar really good guitar players this guy paul soldier in 10 minute warning like, like he's a legend up here in the northwest to all those bands that came later you're talking about the 90s band paul soldier was the legend i played with paul paul was my i played guitar with paul wow. um um so slash Playing with like he he played acoustic guitar in his mom's basement that night. After we met at Cantor's, we went to his mom's house, and he started playing on like he was nineteen, and he played like an old soul, and he was playing like Mm. blue stuff. I'm like, okay, I judged a book by its cover. Long hair, very soft voice, you know, and he cut because his voice is so soft. He kind of draws you in. And he drew me in from the phone call at the at the phone booth. You know, he said his band was Rodker. <laughs> and know, uh, Rodker. I'm like, okay, Rodker. It's a strange name for a band. But his influences were Fear, Fear, Alice Cooper, and Aerosmith. I'm like, okay, he's a, he's a old punk rock guy like me. You know, if <laughs> yeah. you're 19 and 20, you're an old <laughs> punk rock guy. Right. Um, but I, but his band was called Road Crew, not Rodker. He's just so <laughs> soft spoken. <laughs> um but um but he so i knew like oh man that's special i hadn't played with steven yet and then i met izzy moved across the street and he was more of a johnny thunders stuff i could i totally identify with with izzy like the look he had a hollow body guitar he played like simple thunders killer which is all the, like steve jones you know yeah. steve jones and Th- are those they learn from thunders and it, he so Izzy was in that lineage i'm like I, yeah. can, I can identify this easily and then axel like first time i got in a room with him and he got on a pa to check it i heard two voices coming out <laughs> like a low and high at the same time just like what is <laughs> wow i mean i really liked him so much from the beginning i was like do you do you know what's going on here he goes yeah i don't know how that's happening <laughs> I'm like okay wow you know wow wow and then when when the five of us finally together the five of us um and the first three chords we kind of hit together it was like okay and we were literally we we were a loner group uh we didn't we were're influenced by outside local bands because mm. honestly there wasn't anything that spoke to us at all um uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad it just didn't speak to us. Yeah. Um, at all. And so we we started playing gigs and and, you know, we'd play gigs with Tex and the Horseheads, we We play with Social Distortion, We played with the Chili Peppers and the Dicks. But we'd also play with uh, we opened like a Santa Monica Civic for Black and Blue and Ted Nugent, <laughs> you know, wow. like we could kind of fit anywhere. Um, yeah. And and then we started to get our own draw and it was all people. It was punkers, you know. It was it was uh, rockers from the I like guess the Valley, like rocker girls yeah. from the Valley, um, but they would all come, and it was this congregation of people. And um, we were writing these songs for ourselves. They didn't really fit anywhere, you know. If you look at Appetite and look what what else is out around at that point. Um, you know, we certainly weren't White Snake or, or Deaf Leopard, two very successful bands at that point. Yeah. But they, yeah. by that point, they both been they had both been like langed, you know, <laughs> and it was yeah. this bigger than life. You know, great pop songs, no doubt. Um, but we weren't that. So I don't. So to answer your question, sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, it's nothing in, in nothing in L.A. It was bad or good. just did not influence me whatsoever.
1: When you were talking before about, you know, having a certain instinct on the base of of the right kind of parts and the the way to work with the drummer and the way to support the guitar and all that, you you talk about you guys getting together and, and writing the songs for that first record. And of course, so many of those songs have just become like iconic now that it's easy to take them for granted you're you're like yeah there's this song it's it's been there forever it's part of the fabric of our culture now but you know when i i listen to a song like sweet child of mine and pretend like i haven't heard it you know and just listen to the to the parts like that bass part that you're doing you know that comes in after that guitar intro is such a cool melodic you know i'm i'm hearing like like almost like McCartney influence here and in the way that the bass is is working it's not just sort of your basic root note like rock basis kind of thing no. it's it's got this depth to it that is so important to the song like when you guys were were just coming up with those songs was this the kind of thing where everybody just got together in a room and you guys would just kind of jam and stuff would come out or would people come in with parts like how would you kind of put these things together?
2: Right Um, yeah I mean Izzy had the three chords just D, C and G right Um, okay well that's you know that's pretty what do you do with that (laughs) Axel liked liked it. Axel, okay. Well, well, let's try to make this work somehow. You know, maybe go to the A, you know, uh, and turn it around for the chorus part. You know, hey, uh, yeah, that worked. You know, okay, cool. Did the, the intro for it was at a house. The intro for Sweet Child 9 slash just did not like the three D CG thing. <laughs> we got to get rid of the song somehow we got to get rid of this and he wrote this <laughs> this twi- twisted band, and it's just a tonal thing and it was it, it just goes to show that everything was kind of clicking with that band at that point yeah i came up with the little the little part that off kind of you know offsets what slash is doing uh it makes it more uh from atonal and makes it more melodic when the bass comes in um it wasn't any great, like going home and studying the part and coming back with "Here's my bass part for that." It just happened like that, yeah. you know, in two seconds. Um, and of course, that part to try to get rid of the song totally worked, <laughs> and it, like it was, this, it was this amazing intro to the song. And like, and suddenly we had this ballad. We had this, you know, we, we were in a ballad band at that point, and uh, there we had "Sweet Child of Mine." Wow, night night train acoustic guitars we wrote it before going out to flyer one night um acoustic guitars and then we sang the song as we were out flyering you know with the paper bucket and the paste and the stuff <laughs> wow um because you have to remember the song you know <laughs> yeah. once you write it there, there wasn't uh, smartphones or anything then <laughs> Yeah, a lot of things just seem to work. If you listen to some of those songs in Appetite, if not all of them, there's like seven parts in every song. There's all the little connector parts. You know, how do we connect this verse to the chorus without just going like, or get back into the verse from this chorus? And there, so there'll be out of nowhere. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. There, there's so many, like, when I went back and, and listened to everything, when when the band, when Slash and I came back in, it had been, been years. I haven't listened to Use Your Illusions. I haven't listened to Appetite. And going over this stuff, I kept texting Slash. I'm like, what were we thinking? I mean, there's so <laughs> many parts in this song. It's, and Anything Goes is the strangest song ever, you know? Like, But it all seemed to work. You know, yeah, I, th- I think
0: it's easy for people, you know, to, you know, you talked about judging a book by its cover when you met those guys and they had long hair. And, and I think, you know, people could look and say, these guys aren't wearing shirts and their hairs in their eyes, and they're just out there making noise. And then you listen to the complexity and the sophistication of these songs yeah. that for for so many bands up to that point it took a mutt lang or it took a david foster or it took some producer coming in and saying well let me teach you how to make a transition right and the fact that you guys were in there just bashing it out in a rehearsal room and coming up with this kind of soaring stuff that had these type of changes is is pretty crazy to me um and uh, this you know you just sort of added to your own mythology by telling me that you guys are walking around singing Night Train while you're putting up flyers to, to remember that song. I mean, that's yeah. that's incredible. And, and then I think, though, when you come up writing songs together that way, and then you fast forward just a few years to the time where everyone is flying first class and you're staying in beautiful hotel rooms and the studios are, I'm assuming, much, much nicer. Everything's air-conditioned. You know, how how did that change the way you guys approached... You know f- from being we have nothing but pocket change and we're sweating and you know we got nothing to do but be at rehearsal the guy at the, the guy at the
2: video down in hollywood pulls a gu- handgun out on us because we're everybody's trying to mix <laughs> that or Jeez. that that guy that guy was cheese. Yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah but when that guy i mean you know because d- like you know you watch the rocky movies and and rocky gets to rocky three and he's like he's trying to find that guy that was chasing chickens around you know did you find yeah. yourself still yeah. trying to find that guy
2: um, you know by the time the illusions happen, um, our kind of progression like monetarily, I guess what we're kind of talking about and lifestyle wise hadn't changed We all were able to get a house by the but the very like you know, not a mansion. We were able to each get at like a two bedroom house, little houses. Yeah. So the we um playing first class, I suppose came at some point, uh, but not like when we went and wrote a lot of the songs for illusions, we went to Chicago hmm. and we stayed in a condo uh hmm. and 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 uh, above the metro and Smart Bar, there is a little theater up there, and that was our rehearsal place. and we just you know did what we knew how to do like get together in a room and bang out riffs and stuff and that this they this works and this works and this works some of the stuff was held over from appetite you know november rain was a song axel worked on for five years you know uh we had we had don't cry we had some songs that are on the you know illusions but all the other stuff like it was just super fun like Shotgun Blues is one of my favorite songs on there. We don't ever play it. course, and you know there's some really great songs um but locomotive like things like that that's all like (laughs) that's in that that place in chicago like uh listen to that lenny kravitz first record yeah just over and over and over again you know getting some grooves uh steven was always a very groovy drummer you know of course matt played it on the record but locomotive was a Uh, kind of groove. We came out bones. So, kind of, kind of snappy. You know, how do we fuck this up and slash? Had that, it just fucked it right up, and it was great. It's perfect. You know, things like that. Uh, Izzy had a handful, of, you know, he, he would always have like cool riffs and maybe a hummed, you know, sometimes you have a hummed uh, melody. Sometimes he'd have a, a lyric. Sometimes, you know, a ly- uh, sometimes I'd have a lyric. Axel yeah. really got, uh, was really, <laughs> we had so many songs that really put Axel into a corner. Wow. You know, hey, we've got twenty we've got twenty eight songs <laughs> and uh really put them in a the corner. <laughs> you, you, you only get to be that first record band once, you know, yeah. so we had our whole career before before that to to write and play those songs live in little clubs to three people and blah, blah blah. chance. That's the difference. You don't get to go play your your songs at clubs and refine them and yeah. you know. Your singer, your singer's going to have to write a lyric for that thing because you want to play it tomorrow night. Yeah. Uh, uh, All of a sudden, he's got twenty eight songs. Like, here you go. (laughs) Wow. But I don't know. I don't know. It might have been a little bit of the Rocky thing in there. Sure, might have been, but we didn't notice it as such.
1: Yeah. Um I want to make sure to talk about your band Loaded because um, that kind of came together, I understand, after your second... Uh, solo album fell through the cracks and, and didn't get released by your label. And so you right. shifted attention to Loaded, but Loaded has continued to be a thing uh, off and on, and you have continued to make solo records sometimes, you know, kind of at the same time. Uh, I would love to get your thoughts on what the distinction is for you, kind of as a songwriter of like, what what makes something a, a Duff McKagan solo song versus uh, loaded or any other number of bands we could mention that you've been a part of, but um, you are such a busy guy. D- do you categorize these things in your mind? I mean, how do you sort of m- keep all these plates spinning?
2: No, I don't ca- no, I, I That sounds chaotic. Doesn't it? To try to categorize <laughs> all your, I do write a lot of, uh, on my garage band. I, I call them my crappy demos. I have so many songs. And like sometimes I'll, I'll get on something. This is for guns. I'll just put this aside. I'll email it to Slash, my crappy demo.
0: Like, so then it's
2: in like, it's on another hard drive for me. <laughs> it's like yeah. in the, my, the email, it's in the whatever. Um, and, um, you know, I, I play in a band that rocks really hard right now in Guns N' Roses. And we play a lot of rock. We play a lot, all kinds of rock in our set and um and we play three three and a half We rock um so for the last seven whatever it's been seven years i don't need to do rock on the side you know uh my my loaded is we're we're a gang you know it's it's a really it's a, a love the guys in the band and we, we've been through a lot of cool shit together a lot of struggle a lot of bus breakdowns and whatever you know all that stuff missed flights and and uh, funny customs people that want to go through everything and make you late for your next flight and <laughs> all of that so when you travel the world with with guys you like and i, I really like the band it's it's a real it's a different band again it's different it's not your down the middle i'm not a big fan of active rock on the you know what they call active rock right now on the radio like really i'm not a fan of most of it it just doesn't again it's kind of like that when i moved to la in 84 nothing speaks to me um that i that i can find and susan and i have a radio show we're constantly looking for you know bands to play on our thing so uh, I'll go more to like turnstiles or something like that for quote-unquote new bands or Aaron Jones. Or, um, so I, I think in these past seven years, for me, songwriting, that I keep that acoustic guitar tucked into my chest. And then I know that's the way I want the song to come. Sometimes I'll write stuff on acoustic guitar and I'm like, this is going to be loud and fast and blah, blah, blah. I haven't done that really for the last seven years because m- that, my rock, my rock cup, it floweth over at this <laughs> point, you know? Yeah. So.
0: And, and that makes sense. I mean, there, and there's something, you know, the, the lighthouse record, I sort of, I jotted down a note that I feel like the, the album feels autobiographical, you know, it's a song like um, Fallen, you know, feels like it's, it's very um, from the heart um but there's a lot of we and us in this record um i noticed that there's a lot of these pronouns about you know even on forgiveness you know you say just give us some truth where you know lennon said just give me some truth and you said just give us some truth and like it it's I, i listen to the record and i hear you kind of voicing it's interesting to me that you were talking about not reading the news because you're obviously in touch you're in touch with kind of what's going on in the world and i'm sure traveling has quite a bit to do with that But um, it does feel like a personal record, even at the same time that I think you're giving voice to a lot of common themes and common feelings. Yeah.
2: um, Well, if I get a chance to do something where some people will be able to hear it, and I am a dad, I'm a husband, uh, I feel like I got somewhat of a voice, and I'm going to include us into these topics it's not going to be me how I feel but it's not like fallen that's to my wife that's personal but still it's cloaked in like a lot of metaphors and whatnot. but the golden crown she wears the golden crown I mean that's just like I hit that and like that's my wife that's her you know Um, but yeah forgiveness um, was really I mean it's just I am aware and I, I'm a, the reason I turned off the news in 2015 is because that that grand scheme of a divide that was being orchestrated or narrated to on cable news, anywhere you went on cable. it just, I travel too much. And I go to little towns incognito. It, I do it all the time. I just did it on this tour. I went to Hot Springs, Arkansas. I went to Owensboro, Kentucky. I went to uh town of georgia i mean i do this and i stop and stay in the holiday inn and ride the little cable car that goes around the town and go to the coffee shops and go to the antique stores and wherever i leave the little diner and the thing and i just like to talk to people um and see what's up and i that divide nobody talks about politics you know (laughs) like nobody it's just not it's just not the thing people do Uh, nobody asks me if i'm a a lib tart or a right wing, you know, wacko or yeah. whatever. Right. I don't, never been asked that. And, <laughs> uh, and I got tattoos and stuff, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, I, and people generally, uh, genuinely want to be kind. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's, we all grew up with, with those weird, you know, kids in school, like, well, oh, they're never going to turn out good. You know, there's, but that's far and few between. Right. Yeah. So um, I just thought that, that, the for forgiveness was if you know if you bought into the divide thing and you're scared of the other. This song, this song is my little my little stab hmm. at trying to illuminate the situation and go, hey, it's it's over, hmm. you know. You know I mean I never saw it, like after 9-11 this country coming together like it did there's certain times in my life I've seen that and I'm American you know I, I, um, I'm proud of this country and the people in it and I get to go that's why I go and do these side trips I want to experience this again and again
1: yeah you know well wow. wow. that is uh, that is beautiful um, Duff, this has been an uh, absolute pleasure for us. Thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. It's, it's great to, to get your insights, and uh, we want to uh, encourage our listeners to check out your enormous body of work. But uh, start with the new record, new solo record, folks, and uh, and work backwards. There's a ton to listen to. So uh, thanks again, Duff. This has been great.
2: Killer. Thanks, guys. Really, really great interview. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft,
1: please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit P A T R E O N dot com Songcraft Show.
0: And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com com.